Blog Talk Radio. Let's take a look at the situation leading up to the 84 draft. 
1984 NCAA championship was truly a clash of the titans. Returning to their second consecutive championship game after the stunning last-second loss to Jim Valvano's Cardiac Kids of North Carolina State, the University of Houston once again featured Akeem the Dream Olajuwon, a six-foot-ten terror who dunked over the rest of the NCAA field as part of the original five-slamma-jamma fraternity last year. His frat brother, Clyde the Glide Drexler, had moved on to greener pastures as a professional with the Portland Trailblazers. Houston was still stacked and faced another bomb squad in the finals, Georgetown, featuring their own fully grown man in the middle, the Hoya Destroyer, Senator Patrick Ewing. Man, I miss the 80s. Everybody had badass nicknames back then. Georgetown won the battle and the 1984 NCAA title, but Ewing elected to stay in school one more season as Akeem elected to forego his senior season at the U of H and turn pro, sending him to the top of the draft class. In a stranger than fiction twist of fate, the number one pick was held once again by the NBA team just a stone's throw away from Akeem's university by the Houston Rockets, who only 12 months earlier had selected 1983-84 as Rookie of the Year center Ralph Sampson with the top pick. The Rockets, depending on who you believe, secured this year's number one pick by snatching defeat from the jaws of victory the last two months of the season. The tanking police were up in arms with each mounting Houston loss. The Chicago Bulls, not to be outdone, were also accused of pulling out all the stops to lose games at the end of the season, dropping their last six. The possibility of drafting franchise player Olajuwon and possibly Ewing was too much to risk on something as trivial as winning basketball games in March and April of 1984. On February 2, 1984, the Rockets were 20-26. and 26. They went 9-27 and 27 the rest of the way. One league executive quoted a higher up in the Houston organization that confirmed the lose now to win Olajuwon later directive within their own organization. Tanking to improve last place draft positioning would become as much of a part of the NBA as the dunk or the three-point shot. But the stench of the last few weeks of the 84 regular season became an embarrassment for David Stern, and he proceeded to do what he thought at the time would correct the problem for good. The Rockets' inevitable selection of Olajuwon with the first pick would team him up with the 7'4 Samson, a tandem that threatened to change the balance of power in the NBA for years. 22 NBA teams called and offered their first and second born to the Rockets for the right to the number one pick, but Houston already stitched Akeem's name to the back of a Rockets jersey. Sam Bowie, a rail-thin but talented seven-footer from the University of Kentucky, played in his own Twin Towers lineup with seven-footer Melvin Turpin. Bowie made his name on the defensive end of the floor, and why not nearly the caliber of Lajuan? His great timing made him a terrific help defender and one of college basketball's leading shot blockers. A major concern regarding Bowie was his wiry frame. He suffered a fracture in his left tibia, which caused him to miss two full NCAA seasons in 1982 and 1983. He lost to Ewing in the 1984 NCAA Final Four and his closely monitored healing prior to the draft made him a scratch for Olympic team consideration. The NBA in 1984 was still a big man's league, so Bowie's recovery was under a huge microscope as he was a projected top three selection with a bullet once Ewing decided to stay in school. Also at the top of the NBA radar was a six foot six, 265-pound forward from Auburn, Charles Barkley. Barkley averaged 14 points and 9 rebounds in his three years at Auburn and was quickly becoming a legend as an undersized, overweight, but incredibly gifted phenomenon she had to see up close to believe. Known lovingly as the round mound of rebound, Barkley had 100-yard dash speed, 
cat-like quickness and surreal lift for someone of his size, an oil tanker in sneakers, displaying prima ballerina moves on the court. To say Barkley was outspoken was like saying Bill Gates had a few bucks in the bank. His perpetual tongue-wagging spared no one, and he was eager to provide a running commentary on an endless variety of subjects. Barkley's confidence was off the charts. He made no secrets of an indifference toward making the U.S. men's Olympic team, which was led by the general, Bobby Knight of Indiana University. Charles's motivations were purely financial, wanting to showcase his considerable game to the gathering of NBA executives, coaches, and scouts, and then let the bidding begin. The only gold he cherished would be part of his investment portfolio. In stark contrast to Barkley, Knight was on a life-or-death mission to keep the gold medal on U.S. soil, and within a few weeks of tryouts, Barkley decided he had showcased his unique skill set enough to merit selection, regardless of the pile of bodies he left on the floor with his bull-in-a-china-shop approach. Knight, the ultimate control freak, knew a gregarious outlier like Barkley, who was really considered a terrific guy by everyone he encountered, was also a ticking time bomb that can set international relations back a millennium with one misplaced elbow. Come on, people. Barkley would never throw cheap shot elbows at a foreign player in the Olympics, would he? Or Knight's worst nightmare, that Charles' unbridled tongue would fire a verbal scud missile shot at another country's politics to be heard by half of the free world on television. It was without question that that was a match made in the bowels of hell, and Knight soon sent Barkley packing. But Charles had done his job, convincing scouts that he was a top-five draft lock, as well as a viable pitch man for the NBA's advertising partners in the very near future. Unlike Barkley, John Stockton, the six-foot point guard from little-known Gonzaga University in Washington State, was good enough to warrant an Olympic tryout, but didn't remind anyone of a future Hall of Famer or the NBA's future all-time assist leader. Stockton made an indelible impression to a few savvy NBA executives, who valued his ability to make the bread-and-butter plays over more hyped point guards couldn't, but Stockton would still be a late Olympic cut. Knight felt more comfortable with longer, more athletic guards on defense. Stockton would bide his time until opportunity knocked and was more than ready when it did. His efforts impressed the draft contingent in Utah, who already had an all-star point guard in Ricky Green, but saw Stockton as an able backup and possible Green successor. Excitement was palpable for these college prospects and NBA team execs on the weeks leading up to the draft. The talent at the top of the draft order could change the course of a struggling franchise for years, and the mid-first rounders were also viewed as solid role players with great upside. I feel like I'm forgetting somebody. Akeem, Barkley, Bowie, Stockton. All-American forwards, Sam Perkins of North Carolina, Wayman Tisdale of Oklahoma, Alvin Robertson of Arkansas, Kevin Willis, Michigan State, Otis Thorpe, Providence. Bowie's Twin Tower, Melvin Turpin of Kentucky. Let me check the NBA website. Oh, yeah. There was a buzz about this promising shooting guard out in North Carolina, a teammate of Perkins that some teams may take a chance on in the first round. Um, yeah, the Jordan kid. Michael Jordan's North Carolina Tar Heels did not return to the Final Four after the jumper clinched the 1992 NCAA title but his feet's on the basketball court and everyone talking about his total package of skills leading up to the draft. Jordan hovered above the rim and was already doing things in the air most players couldn't do on the ground. He was a natural heir to the Skywalker, six foot four David Thompson of the Denver Nuggets, who Jordan idolized as a kid watching Thompson in the North Carolina State Wolfpack shock Bill Walton, Keith Wilkes, and the defending national champion UCLA Bruins in the 1973 national semifinal. 
Pro scouts expected Jordan's floor to be an all-star and his ceiling to be a perennial all-NBA selection. But people are lying through their teeth that they foresaw five NBA MVPs, six NBA Finals MVPs, six NBA championships in his 6-6 body of work after just three seasons under the tutelage of North Carolina coach Dean Smith, a master of fundamental team-first basketball. Jordan averaged 17.7 points in three seasons under Smith and was always a willing cog in a great basketball machine. Michael's untapped potential once he was unleashed from the strict boundaries of Smith's North Carolina, State, North Carolina offense was a hot topic around the league. And the Portland Trailblazers, who lost the coin flip in the Akeem sweepstakes, would select number two behind the Rockets with a franchise-altering decision to make. Conventional wisdom would have them draft center Sam Bowie to solve their immediate need, protecting the paint, controlling the defensive boards, and complementing their own six-foot-six guard with seemingly unlimited potential, Clyde Drexler. In his rookie season, Drexler averaged a mere 7.7 points per game, playing behind all-star shooting guard John Paxton. The high-flying, five-slam-a-jam alum Drexler had already shown flashes of a game not that far removed from Jordan, slashing drives, powerful dunks in and out of traffic, and great lift on his evolving mid-range jumper. A Paxton-Jordan-Drexler platoon system would be awkward and stymie the development of both young players. Most importantly, Portland had constructed a solid roster with Michael Thompson, Calvin Nadd at power forward, who they would soon trade to the Denver Nuggets for small forward Kiki Vandeweghe, Darnell Valentine, Drexler, and Paxton the guard, and they boasted a versatile bench. Management viewed Bowie as the final piece to the puzzle, a big man to defend Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, still the gold standard center in the West, and a major roadblock to any of Portland's championship aspirations. So in retrospect, reasons A, B, C, and D made perfect sense to Portland's general manager, Stu Inman, going into the 1984 draft, despite a significant seed of doubt planted by the condition of Bowie's supposedly mended tibia bone. X-ray shows the bone was healed, and Bowie's battery of physical tests were passed to the satisfaction of Portland's team doctors and specialists. But the last thing Portland's fan base needed to hear was that their star center had bad wheels. Portland center Bill Walton's tragic battles with foot and ankle problems led the Blazer faithful from a passionate love affair in 1977 to a bitter divorce in 1979. The cosmic echoes of that relationship still resonated throughout the city in 1984. Michael Thompson would miss an entire season with a broken leg, and Blazers fans had no interest in the latest MRI results. They needed rebounds and block shots. And sadly, Bowie would later confess that he bit his tongue during the grueling battery of tests, and it should be noted that in 1984, medical testing was not nearly as technologically advanced to uncover potential problems. Bowie said he felt significant pain but saw his career dreams flash before his eyes and couldn't risk wrecking a secure financial future for himself and his family. That's a tough dilemma for a teenage kid to face, and certainly from his perspective, withholding the truth was just thinking positively. The Olympic candidates had already started a rigorous training camp in Indianapolis in April prior to the draft, and there was no questions in the mind of Knight and his USA basketball coaching brain trust, Don Donaher of Dayton, George Raveling of Iowa, and C.M. Newton of Vanderbilt, that Jordan was the alpha male in the process of building a team. Ewing would anchor the middle, while Jordan's All-American teammate, Sam Perkins, and All-American forward, Wayman Tisdale, were locks to make the squad. As mentioned earlier, Bowie and his leg issues made him a scratch for the game. North Carolina's Kenny Smith was also a no-go due to wrist surgery. 
So the remaining eight spots will become a battle between 68 of the best players college basketball had to offer. Make no mistake, Bobby Knight would build the team in his image. Jordan Ewing and Tisdale and Perkins were the stars, and the next eight would comprise the optimal supporting cast. He would have this team playing the Bobby Knight way, pressing, trapping defense, continuous ball movement, run the break to perfection, and take only high-percentage shots. The alternative was acclimating your ass to the pine if you were lucky enough to get that far. Thick skin would be requirements 1A, 1 and 1A for this process, and Knight's biting criticism would become an equal opportunity experience for everyone involved. And, yes, Jordan heard more than his share of Knight's explicatives during his performances. For the players, they knew that Knight's personality in this grueling training camp was a necessary evil and an otherwise golden opportunity to play against the best in the country in front of NBA GMs and coaches in advance of the 1984 draft. Players like Joe Dumar, Stockton, Terry Porter, and Carl Malone were from schools not named Georgetown, North Carolina, Duke, and Kentucky, so they could showcase their skills for pro scouts that didn't see them three times a week on television. They viewed it as jockeying for first-round position. Once the three-a-day tryouts ended in Bloomington, 16 finalists would play a series of scrimmages against NBA players such as Magic and Isaiah in venues around the country. The final 12 would be chosen before July 15th. Other candidates included Steve Alford of Indiana, Terry Porter, Wisconsin, Stevens Point, Del Curry of Virginia Tech, much better known now as the father of Stephen Curry, John Conkak, Tim McCormick, Joe Klein, Michael Cage of San Diego State, Ed Pickney of Villanova, Mark Price of Georgia Tech, Chris Mullen of St. John's, Johnny Dawkins of Duke, Vern Fleming, Pearl Washington from Syracuse, Keith Lee of Memphis State, Mel Turpin, Kentucky, Leon Wood, Cal State Fullerton, high school stars Danny Manning and Walter Berry, Chuck Person from Auburn, Joe Dumars, and a little-known forward from Louisiana Tech named Carl Malone. But eyewitnesses of the first two weeks of camp agreed to a man that Charles Barkley dominated early workouts and scrimmages, rebounding, shot-blocking, physically intimidating bigger players, hitting shots from all over the court, and repeatedly running a one-man coast-to-coast fast break for thunderous jams, a jaw-dropping experience for those who had never experienced a six-foot-six, 270-pound human being perform in such a manner, which meant everybody. He stole some of Jordan's thunder, but Charles would reiterate to whoever would listen, the only goal he was interested in was the kind he would sign for after the draft. This is a purely political appearance to wow the NBA scouts, coaches and GMs in attendance, and improve his draft position while snagging a few endorsements along the way. And he succeeded with both goals, folks, in spectacular fashion. The 1984 draft can be seen in all its glory on NBA TV every summer, and I can't do it justice by trying to capture every detail. Watch if only to check out the fashion statements of the day, as Will Smith would say, damn. Akeem was a done deal for the Rockets at number one, and then in five more minutes the Blazers would alter history at number two. Oblivious to Bowie's well-kept secret, the Blazers pulled the trigger on the center from Kentucky. Bowie's little white lie would become music to Chicago Bulls general manager Rod Thorne's ears. He's ecstatic to take Jordan with the third pick, changing a tough luck franchise in a city's fortunes overnight. David Stern had no inkling at the time that Jordan was about to change the leagues and his own fortunes as well. The selection of Jordan would begin a basketball renaissance in the Windy City. Bulls fans would get a taste of their rookie superpowers in a few months in Los Angeles, but until then the excitement was swelling by the day. There were unsubstantiated rumors that Houston kicked around the idea of offering Ralph Sampson to Chicago for the third pick of Jordan. It's well documented that Rocket coach Bill Fitch 
the hardliner coach of the 1981 world champion Celtics, who wore out his welcome in Boston just a mere two years later, was not a fan of Sampson's hybrid game. He didn't think Sampson played enough with his bat to the basket or had enough backbone in general. But the temptation of a younger, infinitely more athletic Parrish McHale front line in Houston featuring Akeem and Sampson was reason enough to snuff out that conversation and roll the dice on the new Twin Towers. Jordan's North Carolina and Olympic teammate Sam Perkins was selected with the fourth pick by the expansion Dallas Mavericks. Kids, Perkins was a 1984 edition of the Miami Heat's Chris Bosh. Deceptively agile with an enormous wingspan, Perkins filled the fantasy box score. He displayed a steady mid-range jump shot from the elbow, could post up, get his shot over bigger centers, hit the offensive and defensive glass, block shots, defend and pass. His training under Smith at North Carolina translated well into the NBA as he excelled in the fundamentals of the game, and his team-first character made him a perfect complement to young guns Mark Aguirre and Rolanda Blockman, just as Bosch fit seamlessly with LeBron and Dwayne Wade. The Philadelphia Sixers were up next at number five. The Sixers pit this high as a result of a 1979 trade of prolific gunner Lloyd Free, who had his name legally changed, I wouldn't lie to you, to World B. Free. And he traded them to the struggling San Diego Clippers for the Clippers' 1984 first-round pick. In Exhibit A of how you need to be more lucky than good, the Clippers, Rockets, and Bulls were neck and neck in the last weeks of the season, so of course the Clippers decided after eight months to win a few games in April, including the last game of the season, which dropped the Sixers to number five out of the Jordan Olajuwon sweepstakes. Philly went with Barkley as a fifth overall selection, and reports have it that neither camp was enamored with the other. Barkley wanted more money initially than Sixers could offer. Folks, if you can even fathom this, the inaugural NBA salary cap in 1984 sat firm at $3.4 million per team, and the veteran Sixers, just one season away from world championship, still field featured the doctor, Julius Irving, 1983 NBA and Finals MVP center Moses Malone, brilliant backcourt mates Maurice Cheeks and Andrew Toney, and six-time all-defensive team selection Bobby Jones. Those guys gobbled up the entire salary cap. Teams over the cap in 84 could only offer rookies $75,000 for their first year. After that, they could renegotiate, renegotiate after the first season. Barkley wanted no parts of that chump change after tearing up the Olympic training camp. He was hoping to go to a rebuilding team that could offer him the rookie maximum. So Philly had to jettison a couple of player contracts to get Charles an acceptable deal. And the Barkley era had begun, and Sixer knew they had more than a handful of talent and headaches. The next player in order, Melvin Turpin to the Washington Bullets, Alvin Robinson to the Spurs, Lancaster Gordon to the San Diego Clippers, Otis Thorpe to the Kansas City Kings, number 10, Leon Wood to Philadelphia, number 11, Kevin Willis to Atlanta, number 12, Tim McCormick to Cleveland, number 13, Jay Humphreys to Phoenix, number 14, Michael Cage to the Clippers, number 15, Terrence Stansberry to Dallas, and number 16, John Stockton to the Utah Jazz. The Mavs would send Terrence Stanberry to the Pacers, where he played two seasons there and one with Seattle, averaging 6.3 points in total, 390 assists for his three years' career, only 15,416 assists short of Stockton. Stockton was just another case of pro scouting, which was still regionally weighted in the 80s, before those big sports networks that showed everyone everywhere 24-7. If Stockton would have played a few games versus the Big East, ACC, or SEC, there would have been much more recognition nationwide. 
But I repeat, the draft is like a slot machine where you play for hours, and then the next person puts in a quarter and wins the jackpot. A roulette wheel spin dressed up in a suit and tie. And no sure things, just your gut and a ton of luck. Number 17, Jeff Turner to the Nets. Number 18, Vern Fleming to the Pacers. Number 19, Bernard Thompson to Fresno uh, for Portland. Number 20, Tony Campbell to the Pistons. 21, Kenny Fields to the Bucks. 22, Tom Sewell to Philly. Number 23, Earl Jones to the Lakers. And number 24, Michael Young to the Celtics. In hindsight, the Blazers passed on Michael Jordan, and that was enough to haunt Portland general manager Stu Inman, considered one of the best judges of talent in league history for the rest of his career and far into retirement. Sources say Olympic coach Bobby Knight pleaded with his longtime friend Inman to take Jordan over Bowie. But Bobby, we need a center, Inman replied. Knight roared back with, then let him play center. The Blazers did get a nice consolation prize, selecting forward Jerome Kersey in the second round with the 46th pick. Kersey went on to become a terrific player on a Blazer team that went to two NBA Finals in 1990 and 1992. With the draft down in the rearview mirror, the league's attention turned to the U.S. men's team versus NBA All-Stars in a series of exhibition games. Teams led by All-Stars such as Magic and Isaiah tried to turn up the pressure on Team USA, but the youngsters were never rattled. The NBA stars would throw man-to-man, zone, and full-court pressure defenses at the red, white, and blue. But guards Jordan, Vern Fleming, and Alvin Robinson pressed right back, beating the NBA time and time again for easy layups and gravity-defying Jordan dunks. The established NBA stars on the court, as well as league coaches and executives in attendance, drooled at Jordan's unique ability and uber-competitive spirits as he was matched against some of the NBA's best. But, you know, in fairness, the NBA stars were not in the greatest NBA shape in the offseason. Coach Knight's finished product was comprised of guards Jordan, Alvin Robinson, Vern Fleming, Leon Wood, and Steve Alford. Forward Sam Perkin, Wayman, Tisdale, Chris Mullen, and Jeff Turner. And centers Ewing, Joe Klein, and John Konkak. The makeup of this team was a stark reminder that in 1984, U.S. basketball was still a coach's team. Knight had players filling out the roster that he can control through intimidation, none more so than his own point guard at Indiana, Steve Alford, who Knight harassed unmercifully throughout all phases of the Olympic process. Duke guard Johnny Dawkins and Barkley's teammate Chuck Persons served as alternatives in case of injury. The Olympic Organizing Committee took control over credentialing for the basketball tournament at the Forum, so my Laker and NBA contacts couldn't help me. Devastating, to say the least. After having season credentials and shooting two NBA championships the past two seasons, there was no way I was missing an opportunity to shoot the Olympics. So I went back to old tactics. I looked in the L.A. Times classified section for tickets to the men's basketball final on sale. There were two nosebleed seats for 80 bucks a pop. Hey, that's a lot of bucks back then to hit your head in the forum ceiling. I immediately called my buddy Andy Bernstein, who had not become chief photographer of NBA photos just yet. I grabbed the tickets. We strolled into the forum for the gold medal game, fully locked and loaded with our gear. We patiently scanned the forum from unoccupied seats in the lower bowl. Remember, folks, this was 1984 in Los Angeles. People owned seats and still found better things to do. We spotted two seats about 15 rows from the floor, made our way down like we owned the place. Didn't hurt that the same ushers were there from the Lakers season. A wink and a nod gave us a perfect long lens access to the action. But after the grueling tryouts, camps, and NBA scrimmages, the Olympic Games were a mere formality for the U.S. men's team. Led by Jordan with 17.7 points a game, still pedestrian numbers by the legendary standard he was about to set, the team went 8-0 on its way to gold, averaging 95.4 points a game and holding their opponents under 70 points. 
The closest game was a 78-67 loss to Germany in the quarterfinal, win to Germany in the quarterfinal, in which Knight nearly blew a head gasket, ripped Jordan a new one during and after the game, and had the entire team count the minutes to the Olympics were over. Knight would reminisce years later that Jordan was a willing accomplice to a pre, in a premeditated tactic they would use to keep the whole team in line. He'd scream at Jordan in mock anger throughout the entire four-month process so the others would take their vicious tongue lashings in stride. I remember take, telling Mike very early, I'm going to get on your ass and some days you may not understand why, said Knight. I'm going to say something to you and the ears of the other guys are going to perk up because they're going to say, damn, if I could be like that with Jordan, I better take care of my game. And Michael was fine with that. That's why the direction the team took was in large part because of him. This was his team, and that's why I made him the captain. Whether that was true or not, Knight seemed perilously close to crossing the line as Jordan was presumably, presumably close to tears on at least one occasion. Tisdale noted it all. Bobby Knight was a raging maniac. He put us through pure hell. Three other players averaged double figures. Chris Mullen, 11.6, Ewing, 11.0, and Steve Alford, 10.3. Wayman Tisdale led the team in rebounding, 6.4 a game, while Leon Wood led the team in assists, 7.9 a game. I'd like to dedicate this to my brother-in-law who just recently passed away, Mark Tinney. Uh, God rest his soul. He was a avid basketball fan and a wonderful human being, and we'll all miss him. So stay tuned for the next podcast, the 1985 season, also known as The Revenge of the Lakers. Thanks, Thanks for listening to the Golden Age of Basketball, and have a great night.